Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. us today is Daniel Levitin. He is a fantastic writer. I loved a previous book that he wrote, The Organized Mind. The current book that we're talking about today is Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. Uh, The name was changed from the hardback, and we'll talk about that a little bit. It was first called A Field Guide to Lies. It's a tremendously fun book to read. It's about statistics in the best kind of way, how we think about ideas and how we talk about ideas and how we try to prove our points and how other people try to prove their points in ways that may be misleading and in ways that require further investigation. He's a uh, professor at the Haas Business School uh, at UC Berkeley and already from my conversations with him, a delightful guy. Daniel, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, you know, it, it is so fun. You use such great examples and and you allow the reader to engage with the statistical challenges that you, you know, you write things and it gets me, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm starting, I, I, we, we talked just now about, you know, a point you make about how second graders, that, that people read, kids read fewer and fewer books after second grade. I think I'm saying this incorrectly. And there's all sorts of questions around that. And you begin to think, well, you know, how long is a book in second grade? And what else are they reading? And all these things that allow you to recognize that um, a statistic is rarely just a truthful number that proves its point. And, and you're really unpacking that in the book. So thank you for reading it. Let's uh, for writing it. Let's start with um, the change in in the book title. You were just talking a little bit about it. You change it from a field guide to lies to weaponized lies, and maybe also speak about the idea of framing this whole conversation as lies. I think is kind of an interesting question. Well, so I I began writing the book in uh, two thousand one actually, uh, and was collecting examples from the media. Um, from my students at McGill University before I was at Berkeley. And um, I began in earnest to write it in 2014. Um, and, you know, this was before we saw the rise of um, Trump and his um, statements that uh, in many cases are um misleading or untrue, uh, or, you know, just plain out false. Um, and the book came out before Trump won the election. And it was always our plan to release a field guide to lies in paperback, uh, in order to make it affordable to people who don't want to shell out twice as much money for a hardback, or just to have the portability of the thing, uh, easier to read on an airplane in paperback. Um, and we were thinking, well, is there something we can do to kind of announce the, the release of the paperback and build some excitement? And my editor at Penguin uh, suggested that we change the title to Weaponized Lies, from a field guide to lies, which um, is a phrase I had used in an opinion piece I wrote for the New York Daily News in December. Um, not about Trump, actually, but you may remember there was a story floating around in October of 2016, Pizzagate, 
that Hillary Clinton was running a child sex slave ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And this drove a mentally unstable man from one of the Carolinas to drive up to Washington, D.C. with a semi-automatic weapon and then discharge it there. Now, this whole thing about Hillary Clinton was a lie. Uh, and here's a case where it had become weaponized. Somebody you know, literally took a weapon in hand because of this lie. And I thought this marks a kind of a turning point in public discourse and in our consumption of news that you know many of us are now believing things that aren't true and the consequences aren't simply that we're stuffing our heads full of nonsense we're now you know acting either politically or um, physically based on untrue information so let me ask you a question directly related to that because and I'm jumping you know seven questions down from where, where when I plan to ask you this but it's related uh, to this particular topic, which is I was down south uh, with my family. My wife is from Savannah, Georgia. We were in North Carolina, and we were with one of her cousins. And I made some comment about Obama or Trump or something. I can't remember exactly what I said. But I remember his response very clearly, which is um, whatever it was that I said uh, led him to say, you know, but Obama wasn't even a U.S. citizen. And I said, well, like, are you – are you kidding? Or are you like, I, I, I didn't. And, and he was, and his wife came by and said, don't talk politics. Um, but, but he was saying, no, absolutely not. He was not, he, he was, you know, not born in this country. When you like, that's not a statistical question. It's someone's opinion based on data that they've heard somewhere with counteracting data. How do you engage in that kind of a conversation or do you just not? I mean, I don't I didn't quite know where to go from there. Uh, well, so I think one needs to separate the political from the factual here. So clearly, um, you're the person you're talking to um, has a beef with Obama or if not with Obama personally, with Obama's policies or platforms. And that's a separate issue. And I think what the you know, it depends on whether you want to um, have a conversation with this person that will bring you guys closer together uh, or, or, or not. So, so I want to pause for a second because I think that's such an important point what you're making, which is before you even engage in any of these kinds of conversations, it, the first question is what's the outcome that you're going for? Because it's not a question that most of us answer. We just get triggered and someone says something or, or, we, or we just blindly believe and and what you're saying, which I think is so important, is what what is the point? You wanna you know, we, we so often wanna get to the truth, but it's a but it's also worth saying, what's the point? Am I trying to get closer to the person? Am I trying to win something? Like why am I engaging in this conversation? I think that's a brilliant and very important question. Right. And part of leadership, I mean this is a leadership forum. Yeah, part of leadership is understanding the question behind the question or the comment behind the comment. So if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you a story. Uh, I was in a taxi cab uh, some months ago, and the cab driver said, he saw me working in the back seat on my computer, and I have a little mobile internet, you know, hotspot device, and, you know, I'm working on, and he says, oh, do you have internet back there? And I said, yeah. And he says, uh, you know, it, it's a shame with all of the technological process, progress we've made in the world 
uh, you know, I, I understand that there are 20 billion people in the world who don't have internet. Now, <laughs> you and I are laughing because we know that there aren't 20 billion people in the world. I mean, I, I don't know exactly the number. I'm not the rain man, but I mean, you know, it's, it's somewhere between seven and eight billion people in the world. There's not 20. So the number is clearly false. But the, the comment behind the comment, what he's getting at is an emotional point which is that there's a lot of people without internet and internet can be a democratizing force and a force to help people be lifted up out of poverty, to get them educated. Um, it can be a force for tolerance. Uh, it allows you to see other people uh, living other lives. So we engaged at that level. Um, and we talked about uh, the unequal distribution of wealth in the world and, and how the internet can be powerful I asked him if he remembers the first time he used it. We had a wonderful conversation. At the end, I said, and oh, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. I have to tell you, you've just shed light on a conversation that I had, and I took the absolute wrong tack. So I was, it was, I was in Cape Cod, and it was when there was a hurricane coming up, and the hurricane was down in Georgia, North Carolina. This was probably about six or seven years ago, and it was coming up the coast. And, and, and everyone was nervous and stressed out and, you know, buying water. And, and, and somebody said, to, and we were at the beach, actually. It was, this was probably about 24 to 30 hours before it was supposed to get up to where we were in Cape Cod. So, so there was wind and the beach, you know, there was some, but it was still 24 to 30 hours. And, and it was in Georgia or South Carolina or something like that. And the guy said to me on the beach, he said, you know, this is going to be the worst hurricane ever. It's moving up the coast at 500 miles an hour. So, <laughs> so you Faster know. Faster than a jet. <laughs> right. Right. And so I, I, you know, what I should have said, which is what you've said is, you know, yeah, it's really a big storm and it's coming fast and we're all a little nervous. Instead, I was kind of a jerk. I'm like, you know, 500 miles an hour, so it's going to be here in about 45 minutes, right? This thing's going to be here like in an hour. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. It can't possibly be fine. And I, and I approached it um, in really like a, a not useful way uh, because uh, I was you know, sort it of... Depends. It depends though, right? You have to know who you're talking to. Know your audience is one of the things that I say. So... Uh, if if you were on uh, if you were doing live news on uh, television or radio, and you know the head of FEMA or the head of the U.S. Geological Survey said something like that, it's your responsibility as a journalist to come back at them. And not, not I guess it wouldn't be U.S. Geological. What would it be? Some meteorological agency. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? If you're talking to a public official, right? And you're a journalist at that, and those are the roles you're playing. You have a right to call them out and to fact check. And is that could that really be right? Could you be off by a decimal point? You know. And you talk about it in term in the book in terms of plausibility. Like you just yeah. ask the question to say, is it is it plausible if there's eight billion people in the world that twenty billion of them don't have internet? Right? You know. Yeah. Or or is it you know is it plausible that a storm could be moving twice as fast as a jet would move? Right. And so, you know, with with your uh, experience in um, Georgia with the guy who says, well, Obama wasn't a citizen. I mean, 
you know, what are the things that you don't like about Obama or about his administration or what, what direction do you think the country should be taking? What, where would you like to see the country in 10 years from now? Uh, what I find when I talk to people who hold different political views than I do, in many cases, we, we agree on where we want the country to go and what we want. We want the country to be secure. We want um, to minimize poverty. We want people who live here to feel that they have opportunity. Uh, we want clean drinking water. Now, we might disagree about the best way to get there, but as a starting point for the conversation, we envision the same end state. And, you know, having established a rapport then, at the end of the conversation, you could say something like, gee, if, if he really wasn't a citizen, you know, half the country seemed to be against him at any given moment. Don't you think somebody would have filed suit and this would have been adjudicated and, you know, there, there are a lot of people who hated him, not just you, right? And yeah, that's actually great. That's a point. So, and you make that point in the book too, and it's great, which is to say, you know, it, it, it's a little bit like the plausibility argument, but if this were true, wouldn't you also see X, Y, and Z happen? Yeah. And that's interesting. That would have been a great way to answer it. Yeah, now I'm starting to think of this list of poor conversations that I've been in and to, you know, throw them at you so that you can give me better ways of answering them because it's very, that's very smart. And what I love about what you're saying too is it's a very human approach. Like we're not just rationalists trying to disprove people who use statistics poorly, but it's about the, you know, ultimately in the service of the truth and the relationship. Well, so there are two things, yeah, there are two things going on here, Peter. One is um, that we're we're trying to get along with others and, and build a society where people can talk across the aisle, so to speak, and have civil discourse without just yelling at each other. Uh, and then at the same time, we're trying to um, inform ourselves about what's really true so that we can make evidence-based decisions. The, um, and I, I hope I don't need to um, justify why evidence-based decision-making is better than superstition and rumor and innuendo. But I mean, the fact is, it, it turns out that people who use evidence-based decision-making have much better life outcomes, greater life satisfaction, they live longer, they make better personal and health and medical decisions, better financial decisions. But you know, parallel to that is that you can't reason somebody out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. It's a great, um, let's say that one more time because it's a very important statement. You can't reason somebody out of a position or a belief that they didn't reason themselves into. So if somebody's made up their mind about something emotionally, like Obama is not a citizen, um, showing them facts and evidence isn't going to change that most probably. Uh, it might. You can hope that it will. I, I got, I've gotten dragged into some arguments with 9-11 conspiracy and moon landing conspiracy people. Because I've gone around the country, actually uh, several countries, talking about the book, uh, which I love doing. I love engaging um, readers and, and would-be readers. And um, it, it's interesting to me, um, I, I do think that facts are important. It's been said we're in a post-truth era, and I think that's horrible uh, if it's true. <laughs> if it's true that we're in a post-truth era. It's horrible because it threatens to set us back 400 years. Right. I mean, what was the age of enlightenment if not 
the introduction of evidence. Uh, we were no longer going to burn witches at the stake and, you know, resort to superstition. We were going to use reason and rationality. And that enlightenment brought in things like the germ theory of disease and the discovery of electricity and, you know, a, a bunch of great um, boons to civil society. Um, but where I'm, I'm going with this is that the conspiracy theorists have gotten there emotionally and sometimes um, talking facts with them doesn't help. But since you opened the door, I'll tell you, you know, one of the um, moon landing conspiracists I talked to, you know, said, well, we, we've got a hundred pieces of evidence that the moon landing didn't happen. And I said, well, give me the strongest one you've got and let's talk about that. And then let's just agree that the others, you know, if, if the strongest thing you got doesn't hold up, then we won't talk about the others because by definition, they're not as strong. Okay, she says, but this one, this one's gonna blow you over because it is airtight, solid, and it's 10 times more compelling than anything else we've got. I said, okay. And she said, well, if you look at the pictures of the flag on the moon, it's kind of rippled like it's, you know, it's moving in the wind. And I said, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting, isn't it? You, you know, because the moon's supposed to have no atmosphere. So what's it doing rippling in the wind? And, and why is it standing upright instead of, you know, flop down if there wasn't wind? And she said, yeah, that's that's the point. I said, well, you know, NASA people are actually rocket scientists. <laughs> And they knew that there wasn't going to be an atmosphere, and they knew there was going to be this photo opportunity. So they had put this metal rod along the top of the flag uh, in order to hold it up. And there, there were one or more rods, you know, sewed into the thing. Uh, and when they folded it for the flight, the rods got bent, and as they tried to unbend them, you know, you ended up with these ripples in the flag. And I said, moreover, there's archival video of the moon landing, um, and you don't have to rely on NASA. You can see it on the CBS news site, or even home hobbyists who took their old Super 8, you know, movie camera and you know shot right off the TV set, and you can see that this is really you know contemporaneous with the event. And in the video, the flag's perfectly motionless. You're assuming that if you see a still, it's it's there might be a more intriguing story in video that shows it flapping around, but no, the video shows it perfectly rigid because in fact there's no atmosphere and it was rigid. So she says, oh yeah, okay, well forget about that one. I got 99 more. <laughs> right, and that's the challenge. And I actually, you know, in reading the book, uh, which is, which I don't want to actually mislead readers because I think it's like all of these stories are fantastic and they're in the context of actually developing your skill to see through the um, characterizations and the statistics that might be otherwise misleading. So it's not just entertaining uh, as a book, it's also very instructive as a book. Uh, for those who are just listening in, I'm speaking with Daniel Levitin. The book is Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. And for those of you who can't tell, I adored it. Um, there's. It feels like there's two... Um, I'm sure there's more, but there's two categories, Dan, Daniel. One is 
the outright lies. Like you give this example of, you know, someone who's kind of against Planned Parenthood and they're trying to show on this graph the uh, number of um, cancer screenings versus abortions and the way they show it with the data um, seems to show a disproportionate amount of abortions compared to cancer screenings that are happening. Um, and, and you look at that, and that's on purpose. It seems very, you know, targeted to influence a decision by distorting the data in your favor. And then there's, you know, people who may just be mischaracterizing things because they, they don't see through it, because they haven't read your book, because they don't, you know, they haven't taken a statistics class. In your experience, how much of it does it feel like are outright lies and people trying to bias decisions with distorted statistics? And how much did you see are people who are just uninformed and sloppy in the way that they use statistics? You know, I have—I don't know how to answer that. Um, I, I think really I, I'm not qualified to answer it. One of the things that bugs me, Peter, is pseudo-expertise. Talk about it in the book, where you'll get a pundit on TV or radio or a podcast, and they do know a lot about one thing, um, but they are easily led to start pontificating about things they're not expert on. You know, a friend of mine, Marshall Goldsmith, says, and I, I love this quote, he says, if you're not the world's expert in something, why are you opening your mouth? <laughs> and that would stop a lot of conversation from happening. Well, I, 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 I'm not the world expert basketball player, but I still enjoy a good pickup game. And I'm very far from being a, a, an excellent guitarist, but I still enjoy playing. And I'm enjoying this, this conversation. Um, I'm not the world expert on this stuff, but I do know my limitations. And I think you'd need a media studies person uh, to really answer the question. My impression is that... Um, without assigning proportions, there are different categories of error. There are people who are really trying to fool you because they want to separate you from your money uh, or, you know, um, they, they want to influence or inflame you about a political or social event. Um, and there's, there's that calculated, I'm going to use these deceptive practices that I've learned in order to fool you. Um, and that's clearly a lie. Um, then there's another category of people who didn't understand the data properly themselves. And it's not just data statistics. They didn't understand the story. They didn't understand the issue themselves. And they didn't know that they didn't understand it. And so, you know, as you were alluding to, like your friend says, they just start opening their mouth and talking about it without realizing they just don't know much. Um, and, and then you have a, a third category of people who um, I guess are kind of like the second category in that they just don't know any better. They, they learned something along the line. Uh, they didn't challenge it. They probably should have, but they didn't know how to go about challenging it. And um, I think that in the second category, you have people who are willfully ignorant, who, who should be, and they know they should be asking, but they don't. And in the third category, you just have people who weren't properly trained. And this happens all the time. You know, you're, you're in a workplace and somebody says, oh, will you make this graph for us? And you say, well, I, I, I don't really know how to do that. Well, you know, we need it by 2 o'clock for the Penske presentation. And, and so you do it. 
You know, the the I think it's the third category that I'm that I'm curious about talking about because when you talk about this conversation you had with the moon landing, uh, or you know the Mark Twain quote that you talk about that was really maybe Billings, not Mark Twain, and who knows? And and um, part of the suggest part of the ability to be discerning in those conversations is to actually have data. Right, So you could be in that conversation with the woman who's questioning the moon landing because you actually had data about what that flag was doing. I think a lot of this, us, and myself included in this, I find myself in conversations where it's not where someone's saying something. And I'll give you a great example. I was talking to someone about global warming, right? And, and I'm pretty confident that global warming is happening. And... I'm pretty confident that human beings have participated in accelerating global warming. But to be honest, I'm confident at that without having read any of the research. And I, you know, rely on the fact that there's lots of experts who seem to be across the aisle who are scientists. So I'm in a conversation with someone who I who I felt like didn't really believe that global warming was happening and I said, "Do you believe global warming is happening?" And he said, I do actually believe that global warming is happening. I just don't believe that human beings have anything to do with it. And I find myself in that situation that I find myself in too often where I have this gut response, which is, you're wrong, and I disagree with you, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. But in reality, I don't have, I haven't spent the time or the attention to look at the data and the information to be able to actually engage in a conversation with them. And I'm wondering in that moment, like how you engage in that conversation or is the only thing you can do to drop it? Well, I, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question, Peter. Um, I've, I've thought about this a lot. Um, most of what we know or think we know, we don't really know firsthand. I've never seen a cancer cell but I trust this community of experts who have. So I believe that cancer exists. Uh, I know people who have cancer and who have died from it and who have beat it. And, you know, it it could be that it doesn't really exist and that, you know, there are toxins in the environment and there's a vast conspiracy by big pharma and the U.S. government and hospital industry to, you know, make us think that something's going on that's not. But, you know... I haven't seen DNA myself. I I actually don't know that the sun is really 93 million miles away from my own observations. But, you know, we, we trust these experts and we trust that the experts have a system of checks and balances and self-correction. Um, and we have to in order to function as a technological society. We have to trust the experts and we have to insist that experts have certain certifications. So um, before you get on an airplane, at least in this country, and in, I'd say the G10 countries in general, um, the, the uh, mechanic who worked on it has to have been a certified mechanic. It's, it's not just some guy with a wrench, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it, there are scheduled inspections every certain number of hundreds or thousands of flight hours. Uh, there are very particular things they need to look for and test. 
And, you know, you're, you're entrusting your safety. Same with doctors, uh, with lawyers, uh, accountants. Uh, there, there are these certificate. They're not perfect. Every once in a while, there's, you know, an engine falls off the wing of a plane or a tax audit happens and you find out your expert made a mistake. But it's a pretty good system, right? It's the best system we've got. Um, and so we do trust experts. I think that's reasonable. The second a part of this is that um, you can actually do a little bit of research on your own that's not too time consuming. And I did this with the climate change issue because I, I'm, I try to be open minded. I'm trying not to just adopt the views of um, someone without asking a few simple, as you indicated, plausibility questions. So my entry point on this and I'm not saying this is the best entry point, this was just where I happened to land, was there had been a letter, an open letter published, might have been in the New York Times, I don't remember, but you know, some months ago, uh, an open letter signed by something like a thousand climate scientists saying that global warming was not real or that it was not human caused. I mean, it was, some, it was some, something that goes against what you and I have taken to believe as the conventional wisdom. Uh, and so I started going one by one because they got the signatures of all these people. I went one by one and I started looking them up to see who they were. Who are these scientists, these thousand scientists that say that global warming is not you know, human related? And about 990 of those thousand scientists were not working in climate change or didn't have degrees in climate change, or didn't have advanced degrees. So, you know, there'd be like somebody with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering signing it. You know, well, you know, look, it, civil engineering is a specialty and they know a lot of stuff I don't know, but there's no reason to think that a civil engineer knows, you know, has expertise in climate science or can make sense of the climate science literature. The other thing I was interested in was among those people who were holding PhDs uh, in climate science or climate engineering or meteorology or some related field, um, earth sciences, right? I mean, they call them different things in different university programs, but atmospheric sciences, I mean, they're different names, right? Um, some of the degrees might be in a physics department, that's okay, but um, are they publishing in, in journals devoted to climate science? So. There's a person in, who's got a degree from a physics department who's a physicist, but all that person's publications and research and expertise have to do with magnetism. I would say that doesn't count. That's not a climate scientist. They've got to be engaged with climate science for me to, to look at their opinion. And so this whole controversy about, oh, well, not every climate scientist agrees. Well, they, they pretty much do, you know, if, if you define climate scientists properly. Right, right. It makes a tremendous amount of sense. Last question that I want to ask you, which is, um, there's one other category. Oh, by the way, if I could just make an analogy, I'm sorry, but I, I'm passionate about this. If, if, if your doctor, if three doctors tell you you have heart disease and that you better exercise or you better cut out the bacon or something, uh, and, and then you keep getting opinions, um, you know, at some point, if you if you talk to a hundred cardiologists, maybe one of them will tell you it's genetic and it doesn't matter what you do. 
Or maybe you'll start talking to urologists about your heart problem and you'll find a bunch of them who have different advice. You know, take that into account with the climate debate. Well, so, and here's this question then. So I was, um, it, 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 this, the question goes to um, even, even the uh, open question of how we think of experts. So when you, you talk in the book about new age and, and you know, I, I was in a um, conversation with some people who in a very new agey kind of environment where it was a very funny conversation where um, we were in a hot tub and one of them was saying, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, the they don't use chlorine in this hot tub. They use whatever it was they were using. Well, maybe bromine. And maybe it was bromine. And and one said, you know, I understand that. It, that's not, it's not very good for your, you know, my doctor, that's what he said, my doctor said that it's not very good for whatever your health. And the other one looked at her and kind of grimaced and goes, your doctor? Like, who believes a doctor? And the other one said, no, 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 a chiropractor. And they go, oh, okay, okay. You know, like, like now I get, now it's credible. And so it, it's that question of how, who you hold up as the expert, like, is there agreement even? I mean, I guess you first initially have to get agreement on who, who, whose opinion or whose perspective we respect and say is the expert, and then work down from there. Well, so this gets to a question of certifications. And uh, again, it's an imperfect system, but most professionals have an organization um, that certifies them, uh, the, the roof workers, people who, who do roofing for your houses and buildings, there's a professional organization. And, um, you know, if you're unionized, you have to go through special training and certifications. And if you're not, you can be a member of a professional organization if you meet certain standards. Airline mechanics, you know, doctors, AMA certified, lawyers have to pass the bar. Um, they're uh, gemologists. You know, there, there are three or four professional organizations for people who will appraise jewelry. Right. Um, the, uh, the membership in these, in some of them, anybody who pays their dues gets in. I would say that's not an effective organization for, uh, for you to know whether the person's really an expert or not. It might be effective for these people to have a, a voice in government or, you know, to lobby. But what you want is an organization that holds its members to some standard, and these exist, and you should look for them. So, but the challenge then is, you know, chiropractors, for example, have an association. They have an association that requires certification and education in order to get there. It's just there might be a disagreement between one set of experts and another set of experts who, you know, are equally certified in their own uh, sort of uh, – in their own uh, methodology and in their own uh, history of, of, of their expertise. But you may have to make a decision at some point to say, you know, which set, which, which set of experts, which sets of methodologies am I going to hold uh, credibility with? You're right. You're right. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of um, medical information floating around and, um, I, I tend to look to places like the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic um, for definitive answers. They don't always agree with one another, but you know their websites are good sources of knowledge. They're at the cutting edge in many fields. 
but you're right. You can you can find disagreement, and that comes to uh, really it's the third section of of my book, the field guide to lies or weaponized lies. The third section is how the scientific method works, and science works in fits and starts, and scientists don't always agree with each other. And you can be left for a period of months or even years in limbo where you don't know what's true. And that's also where you can use the methods of the book, because if if you're you know, if one set of experts is saying this is what I believe, the next question is, where's the data? If we're going to go for evidence based, then to say, you know, how many what what was the statistically valid research based approach that you looked at the number of people with you know in hot tubs with bromine and what kind of illnesses did they get and if it's well i had a friend who um yes. then you know chances are that's not you know that's not statistically very valid versus yeah we did this double blind study and et cetera et cetera daniel uh, thank you so much the book is weaponized lies how to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. It's an international bestseller. It's really an excellent book, and I suggest that you run out and buy it. And it's a fun read that also educates you. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.